Welcome to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. My name is Reese Robinson, and I'm on air today with my co-hosts, Jasmine Smith, Emily Scott, and we have a couple of special guests. We are recording this episode on Thursday, July 22nd, and it will begin airing on July 25th. How's it going, everyone? Fine. Great. Uh, Good. Thank you for being here to our special guests. I'm excited to have you on the show today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. So on today's episode, we have another installment of our series with NYU. Recent updates about the DACA ruling by Texas judge. Um, We also have some information about asylum seekers attempting to reach Europe by sea and some good news from the Indo- about the Indonesian rainforest and much more. So we're gonna go ahead and kick off our today's episode with our local news segment, Jasmine and Judy, take it away. Thank you. Um, so as some of you may have heard before, my name is Judith Zelikoff and I'm a professor at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine in Langone Health. So the NYU Center for the Investigation of en- Environmental Hazards Community Engagement Corp partners with Radio Free Brooklyn to bring to you scientists and physicians to talk about current concerns in public health. And today we have Dr. Uh, George Thurston, Professor Thurston, who's a colleague, a collaborator, and a friend who is in the same department. He's a member of the faculty of the Departments of Environmental Medicine and Population Health at the New York City, at the New York University Grossman School of Medicine. He has a long and distinguished record. He graduated from Brown University in environmental engineering and environmental studies, and he received his doctorate from the Harvard School of Public Health. Professor Thurston's research has focused on the human health effects of air pollution, especially regarding um, very uh, fine particulate matter called PM 2.5. It's He involves studies of air pollution exposure and the effects that they have on individual human subjects as well as populations. He uh, published the first research documenting the association between PM 2.5 and its components uh, with mortality. He's also a leader in bringing scientists and physicians together to reach consensus on key issues. He recently led the American Thoracic Society and the European Respiratory Society statement on what constitutes an adverse effect of air pollution. And he's the recipient of many awards in his area of study. So without further, I'd like to introduce and turn it over to you, Professor Thurston. Well, thank you, Judy, for that uh, introduction. Very nice. Thanks. Yeah, it's a very, very impressive resume that you have, uh, Professor, so we're happy to have you with us. Great to be here. Okay, so um, just to get started, I thought it would be good if you could explain to the audience, what are the short and long-term effects of air pollution on the human body, especially effects you think um, the average person might not be aware of? Well, that's, of course, um, a very large topic that uh, many people are researching and we're still learning new things about. Um, I think the most obvious effect that we've known about for a long time is the effects on the lung because there's air pollution, pollution in the air you breathe and then you're breathing it into your lungs and it can irritate the lungs and actually physically damage your lungs. Uh, For example, ozone. Um, ox- a very oxidizing 
gas, especially in the summertime, can eat away at the lining of your lungs um, and, and irritate them and cause damage and um, fibrosis in the long run. But in the short run, um, you know, I've done studies uh, with children in various settings in uh, New Jersey, actually done some work in Brazil with the pollution there, very high levels at that time. Um, and in the South Bronx, following children at, that, uh, you know, in a scientific study uh, over time, uh, looking at their symptoms. And what we found was, you know, on days with higher pollution, kids with asthma um, have more symptoms. As a matter of fact, on uh, very high pollution days in the South Bronx, we were seeing like a doubling of their um, asthma uh, symptoms. And um, so that's a, the short-term effects um, like that. And, and there's other effects on you know, people with other respiratory diseases. And then of course, long-term in the lung, um, only in the last, oh, say decade or so, it's been acknowledged um, based on some of the research that we've done at NYU um, that exposures to particles in the air long-term can cause uh, lung cancer, much the way cigarette smoke does. Um, only uh, even, you know, ambient particles are actually more toxic per pound. I mean, you breathe a lot more when you smoke, but the ones in the air are very uh, toxic and carcinogenic, um, uh, especially, let's say, ones from fossil fuel combustion, like diesel particles. So that's, you know, something that we, one would expect. But what we're learning over time is that air pollution's effects are pervasive throughout the body. Um, and one of the main ways that that happens is particles, very fine, small, tiny particles. Um, and these are uh, these very small ones, most of them are from uh, the result of combustion, especially fossil fuel combustion, and uh, like gasoline, diesel, uh, oil burning, coal combustion, um, which they did in New York City, you know, uh, up until around the year 2000. Um, and um, the, uh, so these very small particles from combustion, they're so small that they're about the size of um, the wavelength of light, about a half a micrometer. Um, because these particles are so very small, they, permeate deeper in the lungs and can actually be carried into the bloodstream and can travel throughout the body. And also their products can, uh, they become solubilized like um, small uh, particles from oil combustion uh, would get in the lungs and then they can dissolve and the metals and sulfur that's in them. So they're, they're loaded with toxic metals and compounds and that can get into the bloodstream. And so then, you know, in recent, more recent years, we've been finding effects uh, throughout the body, especially cardiac effects on the heart, um, mm -hmm. that because these particles cause um, oxidative stress and inflammation. Uh, and so this is, these are um, hallmarks of uh, problems that lead to uh, cardiac uh, in, uh, problems and uh, plaque development and uh, heart disease. So we've uh, actually, when you look at the numbers, and I've participated in the Global Burden of Disease Study and others, where they look at the total impact 
of the uh, particles. The, the leading problem from breathing air pollution isn't in the lungs, it's in, in the heart. But we're also finding effects other ways. Again, this inflammation and oxidative stress um, really worsens a lot of diseases like diabetes. Um, mm -hmm. And we, we found um, in our study, we did a nationwide study um, with an NIH, National Institutes of Health cohort um, uh, of over a half million people. And we found that places with higher pollution had higher rates of death from diabetes as well. And there, people are finding effects in the brain, just pretty much wherever they look, they're finding it. It's amazing and, and really worrisome. Um, and, you know, they found premature birth and decreased birth weight can result when um, mothers are exposed to uh, more pollution. So that can increase the risk of that and decreased um, uh, fetal growth, uh, preeclampsia, these kinds of problems are found at higher rates. So yeah, like I'd like to thank you for pointing that out because I, I, did, I think that you're absolutely right. People don't, you know, I know for myself, like I think about lung issues and lung issues only. Like I had no idea that um, the quality of the air that you breathe can affect like your heart, your brain. Um, with diabetes, like I think people would think of like your diet affecting that, but it can also be affected by what you're taking into your lungs. So I, I think that's important for the audience to realize. So thank you for explaining that. Yeah, these particles, I've, I've basically focused my research largely on particles in the last, you know, it's hard to believe that someone could spend decades studying these particles, but they're many different types, different characteristics, and they're very pernicious. They, you know, they are themselves toxic. And the other thing is they have lots of surface area per mass and they pick up organics and they pick up vapors and pollutant gaseous pollutants that normally the body would remove in the upper airways and, and you might you know sneeze them out or swallow them and they instead these particles are a vector into the lung and into the body so they're not only toxic themselves they're enablers mm. of other pollutants to bypass the defenses of the body. So this is, you know, really a big problem, especially since the industrial revolution that we've been putting out these very, very small combustion particles by burning fossil fuel and industrial um, pollution. Okay, so thank you. And I'd, I'd like to know, um, since you've, you're, you have, a, have had a long career so far, what advances have you seen made in the U.S. and maybe in other places in combating air pollution and issues with um, particulate matter in the air? I would have to say I've seen a lot of progress. I mean, I just happened to uh, come into the field um, when I was, um, and I'm, I'm giving my away my age here, but when I was an undergraduate, um, the first Earth Day happened. And um, you know, millions of people poured into the streets around the country and uh, the United States, and I think other parts of the world as well. And, you know, for example, Fifth Avenue, I've seen, you know, we have pictures of this. As far as you can see, there's people, you look up uh, Fifth Avenue and there's people as far as you can see, just, there was just a major outpouring uh, that people demanded something be done because the pollution had gotten so bad in the 1960s. Uh, with water pollution, where there were fires in the rivers, uh, uh, you know, in the United States, and the air you could barely see. I mean, um, and um, because of that, 
great civil, uh, you know, peaceful, but uh, civil objections, um, then the Congress and uh, the Senate and the president acted and put into place um, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, and other um, environmental regulations that really uh, since then other countries have emulated um, and we've implemented them. Um, and the air is you know, much cleaner uh, than it, it used to be. Uh, we've seen real progress. Uh, and I think at the same time, it's engendered uh, the fact that we've got to have, you know, there were laws and it made the cars put out less pollution and the industries put out less pollution. And so in the case of cars, of course, you burn less gasoline, less diesel, then you're putting out less pollution. And I think without those laws, our carbon footprint would be even larger than, uh, than it is uh, today. But we've seen a lot of progress, but still that global burden of disease report that, um, that I mentioned um, looks around the world, uh, estimated most recently that about 100,000 people die every year in the United States from air pollution. Mm. Um, that's down from what it was, you know, when um, the estimates, when I started in this uh, in the early 70s, but even though the population has grown a lot, um, but still that's a lot of um, unnecessary deaths and uh, people just aren't cognizant of it until we get some episode like we had with the you know, wildfires and you can see it. Right. Um, it's people in people's faces when it's yeah. so drastic. But in reality, it's there every single day. And, um, you know, uh, you have, you know, walking in, in Manhattan, you know, I go through the, uh, as a pedestrian and the traffic has already gotten bad. Uh, it's it's post-pandemic, definitely, in terms of traffic in, in New York. And, um, you know, they just spew out pollution. I mean, basically, you know, these are like smokers. Remember, when I was young, people, a lot more people smoked. And uh, it sort of became a pariah if, uh, after a while. We became aware that smoking was bad for your health and people didn't want to be around smokers or if you smoke, smoke outside. Well, that's basically what these cars are doing to us. Uh, it's a real problem. Right. Especially like as the population grows and the U.S. doesn't has so many places that are not friendly if you don't drive. It's like you have to have a car to get around so much of the country. Yes, that's. I mean, New York City is 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 lucky in the respect that it does have a pretty good public transit system. But uh, you know, in a lot of other places, like you say, you go out in the suburbs and or you go in Middle America, and there's no very limited public transit. Uh, right. So we we need to fix that. Yeah, I, I'm there with you a hundred percent. And you mentioned um, it's good at least to know that we have made some progress compared to like in my parents' generation or grandparents' generation with air pollution. And you talked about how um, the government played a role in that. Can you describe for the audience how you've been involved in um, like the U.S. EPA Clean Air Science Advisory Council like in the past? Yes. Uh, well, I've yeah I've served um, EPA in a number of capacities o over the years, um, and uh, sometimes I've um, been a, a voice complaining about the EPA. So I've I've really uh, played r all different types of roles depending on what's happening. 
one of the things that was put in the Clean Air Act was that every five years, uh, the EPA has to look at the air quality standards and see if they're being sufficiently protective of health. And that's part of the reason why the law has been so effective, because as we've learned more about the adverse health effects, we've realized, oh, we need to tighten this, lower the pollution. So it's been um, a moving uh, target, you know, that we've moved to realizing, oh, there's still, we've lowered the pollution, but there are still adverse health effects. So we've got to go further. And, and so we've had that. So I've served on the committee that sets these standards, the Clean Air Science Advisory Committee, um, and advised EPA uh, about, I've been on a panel advising them saying, you know, we think that you should probably set this, based on this new science in the last five years, you should set the standard here. Occasionally, they relax the standard, actually, when they find the evidence has been weakened by a new study or something, but that doesn't happen very often. You know, what happens is the pollution, the air gets cleaner, and then more people are exposed to lower levels, and we all of a sudden, and then we can say, oh, now we can, there are more people being exposed there, so we can, we have enough statistical power to do a study with enough people to study it, and goodness gracious, mm -hmm. we still see effects, see? So um, it's, a, it's um, a learning process as we go along, as right. most science, right. um, as we've learned from COVID. You know, we rely on the science, but we keep learning things. So, you know, I've served on that committee. I've also worked, um, EPA hires um, uh, experts to actually write the documents that the panel uses, relies on. In other words, takes the latest literature, summarizes it, makes a report and says, here's what's new, you know? And I've, I've been hired by the EPA to do that at times. Um, but in that case, I wouldn't serve on the panel. I would just be the person preparing, the, you know, uh, con condensing the information. Um, I've testified um, to EPA to uh, encourage them to uh, implement the you know, standards uh, or in some cases to set the standard lower when I wasn't involved in the process, you know, if I wasn't working on it or on the panel, I have gone, traveled uh, to Washington and New York and Philadelphia and said, you know, as a scientist, this is the right thing to do and you, you need to step forward. So, uh, you know, I've been uh, involved in um, the policy aspects. And then on the other side of it, I've been, you know, my, I, I, I'm in um, professional societies. Um, like the American Thoracic Society and the thoracic cavity is the, where the lung and the heart are. And um, the uh, International Society of Environmental Epidemiology. And we come out um, with um, statements on things and uh, we also will testify. So like in the past four years, uh, when things were happening at the EPA, which we scientists disagreed with, then I've been one of the scientists and as have others who have made up testimony and gone to hearings in Washington or virtually and said, this is a bad idea. What you're doing is a bad idea. And this is why it's a bad idea to relax these standards or to not set the standard properly um, and then get that in the record with the, the expectation that if this goes through, that then it would go in the courts and then they would say, well, what evidence is there against it? And then they would go back and look at these. So you want to, you know, okay. get it on the record um, so that in the, the legal case, the, the, it can be considered. Um, right. And, you know, so a variety of um, roles, depending on what EPA is, 
is doing. The scientists can get very involved in trying to advise the government what to do. Uh, you know, they don't always listen. Right. I imagine that's frustrating. Like when you're the expert and you have the numbers, but you don't, you can't guarantee that you know, no matter how hard you work, that they're necessarily going to follow your advice. Yes, it is frustrating. Um, but uh, you know, it's a political process to some extent. Um, so that's, um, you know, all we can do is present the evidence as scientists and hope that, uh, that they will take the advice. And, and of course, if the public weighs in, um, and you know, I, I went to a, a hearing in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, and um, you know, and I spoke about the science with ozone air pollution, but then um, a, a young person actually from the South Bronx came down there and talked about a family member who was um, very ill, and um, and that was and they said that it was much worse when the air pollution was bad, and I think in a way that had more effect than what I said. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I I do think people sometimes underestimate the impact that um, even though they're no expert, uh, that you know they're experiencing these things, and if they go and they testify and get involved they can really make a difference. Okay. And on that note, that goes into, um, we're coming up towards the end here, but what would you suggest like for people in our audience who are concerned about air quality in their area? Like what would be like some first steps you would recommend, like if they would like um, their local government to take action on this issue? There are oftentimes local hearings that are held and they're open to the public. So they should, you know, feel free to attend those and, um, you know, and, and speak uh, up about a problem. You know, for example, if there's a lot of diesel traffic going right by where they live or where their child's school is and, you know, and say something because people, they will listen. If nobody complains, then nothing, you know, things are much less likely to, to happen. So I guess, um, and I know complaining comes naturally to New York, <laughs> but, you know, you, you, you got to do it in the right place. We're the best at it. Yeah, you think? Yeah, probably so. Uh, there are community groups to get involved in um, that can help. I mean, a lot of people say, well, what can I do as an individual? Well, if you join one of these community groups, then you can join their voice and strengthen it. I mean, we've been working uh, with North Brooklyn neighbors. And uh, in the past, um, our CAC, our community engagement uh, core has dealt with Red Hook public housing residents and um, the, like Gowanus Dredgers Canoe Club and other organizations, uh, Brooklyn community boards they've worked with. So, you know, I, I think getting involved locally, you know, if you look at a lot of these problems like uh, like climate change, it's, it's very overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Say, well, you know, what can we do? But the thing is, most of the pollution, most of the carbon dioxide that's put out is put out by cities. And so if people work in their cities, whether it's New York or any other city, uh, if they get involved and they work to try and reduce, let's say, the use of, of um, combustion vehicles and switch over to having more electric vehicles and that kind of thing, or public transit, they can lower the carbon footprint of their and clean the air at the same time. And I think that's an important point. You know, when you look at climate change and, and you look at air quality, um, and you say, what's the biggest problem? It's, it's really one and the same. 
It's really this fossil fuel combustion sources. They're the ones that are are affecting people more because they're living in an urban area, they've got diesel vehicles and they've got industries and the like. And then also they're contributing uh, the bulk of the carbon dioxide. So if you go after that source and try and reduce that in all the cities in the world, we can make real progress. So, you know, start one neighborhood, one city at a time uh, um, collectively, I think. Uh, if we wait for the governments, the national governments to act, I I'm not uh, so sanguine that, that we're going to be able to solve these problems as rapidly as we could from the bottom up. Right. Uh, we can't wait for the top down anymore. Right. Well, thank you so much for being on our show, um, because one thing that we do try to um, do is share resources like on our social media for ways that people can get involved in the issues that we discuss on the show. Um, you were uh, very gracious to send me a number of links to different resources people can check out. So our Facebook page is at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. So I'll be sure to put up um, the link for North Brooklyn Neighbors and as well as the other organizations that um, you mentioned to me before. Great. Uh, and I'd like, I'd like to thank you again for your time. We really appreciate um, you reaching out to the community in this way. It's very important work that you're doing. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to share the information and to encourage people to get, to get involved. Because, you know, the worst thing is you do the science and then if nobody uses it, then you've wasted your time, you know? So uh, I appreciate it when people uh, do uh, get involved and, and, and implement uh, the, you know, the information that we have about what's affecting their health. Right, absolutely. So on that note, um, we're going to have to move on to the rest of the show, but thank you again, Dr. Zelikoff and Professor Thurston for being our guests this week. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. All right. So we're going to go ahead and jump into our first music break of the day. This track is titled Weathered and it's by Greg Sermazic. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. So next up for our national news segment, um, I have drawn information from this uh, article from Reuters. The author is Micah Rosenberg and Christina Cook. And also from an article, CNN.com, the author is Priscilla Alvarez and Tyranny Sneed. The title of the article is U.S. Judge Blocks New Applications for DACA Program Dreamer Immigrants. 
So on Thursday, Vice President Kamala Harris told recipients of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, a.k.a. DACA, that the Biden administration will take action in response to a court ruling that determined the 2012 program is illegal. In her statement, she also renewed calls for Congress to pass a pathway to citizenship. The program was dealt a blow when Texas Judge Andrew Hannon ordered the Biden administration to stop all approvals for DACA. In a split ruling, he found that the Department of Homeland Security violated the Administrative Procedure Act in creating the policy. He found that the policy was implemented unlawfully and ordered the DHS to stop approving DACA applications, although he said it could continue to accept applications. The ruling does not affect the status of any current DACA recipients. The judge also found that the agency's interpretation of statuses was overly broad and those laws did not carry the authority of the federal government to institute the program. The Biden administration said it would appeal the ruling, while the Department of Homeland Security said it will engage in rulemaking to protect the program. Biden's comprehensive immigration bill, which Democrats introduced to Congress on February 18th, also calls for a three-year pathway to citizenship for many DACA recipients, but it lacks Republican support and faces long odds of its passage. DACA was created in 2012, and it was intended to provide temporary reprieve to undocumented immigrants who were brought to the United States as children, a group often described as dreamers, many of who are now adults. Beneficiaries of the program say that the near decade since its creation, in the near decade since its creation, DACA has allowed them to develop lives in the United States that would have been impossible without some form of legal status. Recipients are protected from deportation, granted work authorizations, given access to driver's license, and in some cases, have better access to financial aid for education. At the same time, recipients say the program's constant tumult in the court has caused undue stress and an ever-present looming threat that the benefits of DACA could disappear at any moment. Even though the ruling protects DACA holders for now, the prospect of future court proceedings creates more uncertainty for the specific group of the American society. So that is the story. My general understanding is that this is quite confusing just because if it went in under the Obama administration, and is now being deemed as illegal, what does that mean? Oh, was it found to be illegal or unconstitutional, I guess? It said illegal. The article was very specific to say that this was illegal because of, let me go back just a little bit, because that it violated the Administrative Procedure Act, uh, which is some semantics Mm. about how we create policy. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Right, right. Do you did you see anything in there about like how it violated that? Was it just like not enough? I don't know. Did it explain no, how no. it violated that? No, okay. no, it did not. And I looked at a few articles, as you know, when, before I put it up here. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I'm not exactly. That's why I'm so vexed. That's why I'm so confused, because I'm saying if it went under a president that was a sitting president and mm-hmm. so many people were able to benefit from this process. What is the missing piece and why is there a missing piece? Or is this just semantics and a way for them to rule some shit out? I mean, I, th- I think in general, like, uh, like laws are 
put in place like by people in power and like they're manipulated in all kinds of ways. So I'm sure like, you know, there's a lot of people that are very skilled at wording things in such a way where like technically they're, you know, correct on how they choose to interpret some legal thing, but you know, it's basically twisting it however they want in order to hurt someone. It's just, it, it seems like this is another judge that's out of Texas. So like a lot of a lot of stuff coming out of Texas that's not great um, in recent days. Mm-hmm. Showing their um, true colors, right? I mean, you know, it's like, it's not it's not surprising, but it's very upsetting. And I, I can only imagine what it's like for people who are being treated like this political football in this way, you know, when it's this is their lives that are being uprooted or like they have to live with this kind of anxiety or like you have families where not everyone is of the same status. So it's like, maybe you have a sibling that's born here that's a citizen but maybe you weren't and so you have to worry about like am i going to be taken from my family am i going to be allowed to stay it's just like torturous in a way yeah and it's i don't know i mean it's actually very relevant to the world news story i have too this this giant lack of empathy for groups of people that you know because of nationalism, we've decided like, oh, not our problem, you know, right? Like, yeah, absolutely. It's been, yeah, it's been very easy, I think, for groups of people in, you know, tends to be wealthier nations in the world to like, to just see these people as other because they're not part of our country. And so we don't need to worry about them, right? Like, uh, their lives are, you know, they're just trying to live their lives like you can go fuck yourself, you know? And, it's it's shitty and it's shitty for so many reasons, um, not least of which is that, you know, having a diverse population is so in so many ways like a benefit. Like I think they've done studies where like ec- not and economically, right, like there's all these myths out there about how, you know, taking jobs and this or that and the other thing. And like that just like isn't how it actually works. But because of all the xenophobia um, and certain power structures that, you know, work very hard to continue to stay in place, you know, they create these worldviews that are just really damaging. Absolutely. And at the end of the day, you said, you know, having a diverse group of people in any situation obviously benefits, but the whole foundation of what America is, is that like, it was never one way or the other and people trying to sustain this, you know, dialogue that, that that's what it should be, or that's what it's gotta be. You know, obviously they sound really stupid, but I think for, for this loss, particularly what I'm, I probably most concerned about is that there are people who have been up under the protections of DACA for the 10 minutes of the 10 years of its of existence and all of the different variables, the different presidents, administrations, ICE and its rise uh, to demise of people who are in a process. What does this mean for people who have been fighting for this for all this time? And while they're not, you know, they're accepting new applications, apparently, is what, you know, the, the confusion around what is really happening here um, is wrong because there are people who are directly affected in the middle of this process and, and other m- members of their family are also, you know, in the middle of this process. If one person makes it, in my experience, when I have dealt with, you know, people that I know who are going through the process of immigration, you have one family member who it has moved a little bit further, who helps the next one, who helps the next one, right? Um, what does this mean for them? It's, it's so confusing and it's very discouraging. Yeah, I would also say that with DACA, 
like they they absolutely like deserve support and everything but um they're also part of a group that like they fit into like a narrative a lot of times of like what a good immigrant is it's like oh but they came here as a child they didn't yeah. have a choice like they're good yeah. students they do That's this important. and it's like if you see this type of reaction towards that type of person where they're not even willing to extend grace to people who check off all the boxes of what a quote-unquote productive citizen should be like imagine how scary it is like when maybe like should like everyone isn't a good student like everyone isn't you know maybe they did come here when they were a little older or whatever but you know like you really see like how extreme like this ideology goes because like you're you have people that have no memory of their home country whatsoever have never done anything wrong their whole life and they're still willing to go this hard to kick you out so it's like what kind of a chance does everybody else have then absolutely and it's important to remember that these you know policies against immigration they really affect families as a whole they really affect you know it's still babies in cages it's still issues you know this is not just one or two people that's further along in in the um, green card process this is you know generations of people who have I've been seeking asylum or just seeking safety or freedom um, in the closest place they can find. Yeah, it's violent. Like it's a type of violence, like psychologically to have to be stressed like this all the time, like physically being taken away. Like it's right. It's extremely damaging to to individuals, to families, to communities. And once you get through and once you get that green card, then what? Then you have to deal with, you know, the typical American racist bullshit or um, economy issues that have, you know, 10% of wealth at the top going to space and shit, but that's another story. Anyway, um, you know, just make sure you keep in mind that these stories are important and we need to understand the semantics because this is really just somebody saying the law did not, uh, or if it even was law, I'm, I'm still trying to find answer here because so many people, uh, came through under DACA, uh, for the last 10 years. And now some semantic thing says that it is illegal, which was the actual word. Um, yeah, just keep your eyes and ears locked for changes in the story. And, um, you know, prayers up for all those that are in the middle of the process. Um, I just really hope that those who have uh, attempted to start this process actually see resolution. going to go ahead and pop into our next song, our next music break before we get into the world news and a little bit of good news today because we all need it. Um, the next song is another jazz track called 713. The artist is James Francis. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And next up is Emily with our international news segment. Take it away. All right. So this is a bit of a two-part story um, around actually a very similar topic to Reese's uh, national story. Uh, This first part comes from a July 18th New York Times article by Carlotta Gale titled, or sorry, Gall, titled, They Just Left Us. Greece is accused of setting migrants adrift at sea. Frustrated by more than a year of picking up people, they say Greece has illegally pushed out. Turkish officials invited journalists to witness rescues firsthand. Um, So I'm quoting a lot just directly from this story. Um, So here we go. The article explains, quote, Wet and shaken, women and children were pulled aboard the Turkish patrol boat first, then the men and more children. A seven-year-old in striped leggings, Helia Nazari, shivered uncontrollably as she was set down on the deck. An older woman retched into a plastic bag. They were two of 20 asylum seekers from Afghanistan who had been drifting in the dark, abandoned in rudderless rafts for four hours before the Turkish Coast Guard reached them. Just hours earlier, they had been resting in a forest on the Greek island of Lesbos when they were caught by Greek police officers who confiscated their documents, money, and cell phones and ferried them out to sea. They kicked us all with their feet, even the children, women, men, and everyone, said Ashraf um, Sali, 21, recounting their story. They did not say anything. They just left us. They weren't humane at all. The Turkish Coast Guard officials described it as a clear case, rarely witnessed by journalists, of the illegal pushbacks that have now become a regular feature of the dangerous game of cat and mouse between the two countries over thousands of migrants who continue to attempt the sea crossing from Turkey to the Greek islands as a way into Europe. Since a mutual agreement broke down last year, Turkey and Greece have been at loggerheads over how to deal with the continuing flow of migrants along one of the most frequented routes, um, sorry, <clears throat> along one of the most frequented routes uh, used since the mass movement boomed in 2015. Then, one million migrants, mostly Syrians, fleeing the war in their country, led the surge into Europe. The flow is much reduced. 40,000 have arrived by sea into Europe so far this year, but it is now dominated by Afghans, raising fears that the escalating conflict there and the American withdrawal of troops could bring larger numbers. For more than a year, Turkey has turned a blind eye to the migrants, allowing them to try the sea crossing to Greece. That country has resorted to expelling migrants forcibly, disabling their boats and pushing them back to Turkey when they are caught at sea. Increasingly, Greece is even removing asylum seekers who have reached its islands, forcing them into life rafts and towing them into Turkish waters, as the compassion many Greeks had shown during earlier waves of migration has given way to anger and exhaustion. The tactic of so-called pushbacks has been roundly denounced by refugee organizations and European officials as a violation of international law and of fundamental European values. The Greek government denies that it has pushed back any migrants while insisting on its right to protect its borders. Uh, So last February, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, quote, announced he was opening his country's borders for migrants to travel to Europe. And according to some anonymous Turkish officials, quote, the step was taken to draw world attention to Turkey's own burden in hosting some four million asylum seekers from other nations' wars. However, quote, the action was interpreted in Greece as a kind of blackmail to extort money and other concessions from the European Union on a range of issues. Also, some additional notes on this story, quote, as often happens, the Turkish crew received an email from their Greek counterparts that migrants were drifting in the area. 
a seeming effort by the Greeks to mitigate loss of life, but something the Turks say is an implicit sign of Greek culpability. Um, Also, according to a senior lieutenant commander of the Turkish Coast Guard, the pushbacks, quote, interfere with work against drug and people trafficking. Um, So that's part one of the story. Um, Part two comes from a July 21st New York Times article by Megan Specia, or Specia, um, titled, UK agrees to pay France 54 million pounds to help block migrant arrivals by boat. The article explains, quote, Britain has agreed to pay France 54 million pounds, about $73 million, to help clamp down on migrants crossing the English Channel by boat, despite the failure of similar attempts last year to significantly stem the number of arrivals taking that route. The arrangement comes as hundreds of migrants arrived on the English coast in small boats this week, according to the Home Office, a sharp uptick, and as uh, as Britain considers introducing the threat of prison sentences for migrants who arrive that way. As part of the British-French agreement reached on Tuesday, France will be able to respond by posting more security forces further up the coast, installing and utilizing the latest surveillance equipment throughout northern France, um, said the Home Office, which oversees Britain's immigration policies. The arrivals this week amounted to a high this year for the number of daily crossings by boat, according to local news outlets. But migration experts and rights groups emphasize that overall asylum applications in Britain are down this year, and that the increase through the English Channel reflects a shift in routes rather than a surge in migration. I'll return to this question later when we're talking, but um, the big question I have is why that $73 million couldn't be better spent to help the asylum seekers as opposed to, you know, just beefing up forces to try and, like, keep them, you know, at sea or what what have you. Um, but this is all in line with recent parliamentary moves in England. Quote, the British Parliament approved a new immigration plan, the Nationality and Borders Bill, which could could subject people arriving by boat to up to four years in prison. Quote, the bill was introduced by Ms. Patel this month as the government's latest effort to fix the broken asylum system, as the Home Office has described it. Opposition politicians and rights groups have denounced the plan as inhumane, divisive, and flawed. The measure makes a distinction between people who arrive in the country through resettlement programs and those who arrive by other means, a separation that the United Nations Refugee Agency described as a discriminatory two-tier system. The agency also expressed concern that the bill, if implemented without changes, would undermine the international protection system, not just in the UK, but globally. So that is part two of the story. Almost sort of feels like a bit of a part three to Teresa's national story. Um, Great minds think alike. Yeah. It's a lot of bad shit happening. (laughs) Always, right? Always. Damn, man. Like that's, first of all, like the fact that the English Channel was a transport route makes perfect sense. I mean, it, it, the, the amount of territories that it crosses, um, obviously you can pick up people from everywhere. Um, so that, that works. But what you said was really important that this money is being delegated to stop people as opposed to help them. It, they wouldn't even be in a situation if there was resources available for them. I'm so right. tired of these fucking laws being made to stop problems that were created by this racist ass system. Right. It's like really wild, right? Like, so why can't these people be there? There's not enough resources. Okay. Well, you seem to have like 73 million. Right. Just chilling. Just just laying around. Right. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, it's very connected to like what we see happening here with like, when you see, you know, if you have an increase in houselessness, 
give the police more money to like brutalize them and just make them go away. You know, where it's like, why can't you be using that money to help create like more stable environments for people to be like people are not Mm -hmm. when you make the decision that you're going to like cross a desert and you're taking your life in your own hands or like these people trying to cross an ocean and like flimsy boats people don't do that for shits and giggles because that's some shit that's like fun to do they're doing it because like they're trying to escape some kind of like unimaginable like amount of danger and the way that I think it's come up on the show before but like the nation state is very a very recent event invention in human history where you have like these super rigid lines about where you can and cannot be based on your quote-unquote nationality and it's it's caused so much bloodshed and so much like dehumanization it really makes your head spin. I, I just, I feel horrible for um, the people you were quoting saying they were being kicked and I'm sure they're being called all types of names and it's just so horrible. You can't fight fault people for fighting for their fucking life by any means necessary. Like you just can't do that. Like no matter the idea what. That, yeah. And the fact that they, they passed a bill where people could be jailed for that. Like, you know, it's, it's one thing to treat the whole situation like in the U S um, this big, like, um, I mean, they do, they do jail people. It's just not called jailing. It's like whatever, like, like detention centers or whatever. Um, but as it's supposed to be some sort of like, um, Oh, what's the word? Just like, Oh no, don't come here. Like, looks what happens when people like come a here. Deterrent. But it, it doesn't Deterrent. Yes. It like doesn't work though. Right. Like the, yes, the, the like, it always it, goes no, backwards. No. The situations are so bad. These situations that these people are trying escaping from are so bad, right? Like this is this is not, you know what I mean? Like they need help. They to don't the point need that. Right. This isn't as you said, shits and giggles. Yeah. To the point that being jailed or fined is better than being fucking killed for existence. Like let's let's just weigh the odds. If you were in that situation, what the fuck would you do? Like what would you do? You would do whatever you needed to do to stay alive and keep your family alive. And what's going on, like the way climate change is running around the world and affecting a lot of places that I think, you know, previously they probably thought they would be safe. You're just going to have more people that are forced to have to flee to another area. Um, Like climate refugees are going to increase in number over time on top of people who are fleeing like war torn situations or other types of oppression. So um, we'll, I'll try to find like, resources for people like to try to reach out and help or something like I know it's far away but you know any type of support you can offer I'm sure like they would appreciate it because you know you never know what life might do to you where you need someone to show some compassion mm-hmm. that's right yeah awesome thank you so much Emily that was a great story and uh dialogue we will continue on the show And finally, can you please grace us with the good news this week? I certainly can. All right. So this good news uh, is from Andy Corbley at the Good News Network. Um, The article is from July 10th, and it's titled, Precious Rainforests Are Being Preserved at Highest Rate in 30 Years After Palm Oil Moratorium in Indonesia. The article explains, quote, 
Indonesia holds one-third of the world's tropical rainforests, which are home to people and birds, leopards, rhinos, tigers, and gibbons playing among the lush canopies. And recent protections are helping these vital places thrive. Indigenous tribes, orangutans, and so many more now have a seat at the table under the stewardship of Indonesian President Joko Widodo, elected in 2014. The Widodo administration's shepherding of land use reforms and a reestablishing of a logging moratorium have achieved four consecutive years of declines in deforestation. The steady work culminated in 2020 when the country achieved its lowest forest loss rate since monitoring began, totaling a 75% drop year over year. The country, which has been the largest producer of palm oil, had for years been open for business to anyone looking to open a plantation. But a moratorium on new permits for plantations made permanent in 2019 under Widodo has combined with record low prices for the commodity to slow its once relentless, relentless advance. Quote, policies like a return of 30 million acres um, to indigenous governance, forest fire mitigation strategies, increased penalties and enforcement of environmental laws and other efforts have provided hope that the nation can protect its habitat, restore its remaining forests, and reduce emissions in line with her agreements to the Paris Accord. Quote, this positive change in forestation practices hasn't just been noticed by locals, but also the Norwegian government. Almost a decade after signing an agreement that would compensate government agencies if they could reduce forest loss, the first installment of a $1 billion reward arrived in Indonesia. It is a big deal because it reflects the fact that Indonesia has turned a corner, and that is great news for all of us. Um, Oyvind Egen, a director at Rainforest Foundation Norway, told Reuters. Um, So yeah, some cool stuff. The world's on fire, but Indonesia's rainforest is doing all right. (laughs) So, yeah, got to hear some good stuff every once in a while. Yeah, and, like, those are examples that other places can follow. Like, Mm -hmm. there's that, but, you know, I've seen other things where it's, like, restoring habitats or, like, bringing the animals back. Like, you you see a difference, but it's just scaling that up and, Mm -hmm. you know, listening a lot of times to Indigenous people. And when they say, like, this is what you have to do to protect the land, like, take it seriously. Yep. Absolutely, because I love when you tell good news stories and it gives us a model, a protocol, something to live up to or something to be inspired by. Because ultimately, I think a lot of times people don't get involved twofold. A lot of times people don't get involved with environmental um, issues because they don't know how. First of all, the information is construed and, you know, it takes effort. It takes really effort to do your recyclables and be mindful of the things that you do and your contributions to the problem, as well as your contributions to the information, right? Like what you add, what you take away and who you share it with. But the other part is when it actually works, when it actually works, like that's actually how we're here right now because people care enough to take it serious and put it in motion and make it a lifestyle change that ultimately resolves in our evolution. And that's so important. We have to remember that, that people are not challenged by this because it means so much to them. And if we don't share the resolves, the resolutions and how it actually works, how will we believe that we can do it? So yes, thank you so much, Emily, for the good news. I think it was excellent. And it's always a pleasure to hear um, that somebody is taking all of our lives seriously. Shout out to Indonesia. So that's it. 
folks for this week's objection to the rule. Thank you so much for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org on the Radio Free Brooklyn app on Spotify or anywhere you get your podcasts. Listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. So we're going to play you out with a tribute song. Of course, we lost a legendary MC last week and I would be beside myself if I did not honor this man. Um, actually, oh, yeah. I actually met Biz Marquis at the Spit Kickers <gasps> tour. I think I was maybe 19 oh, or 21. Wow. Whoa. Yes, it was awesome. Oh. Spit- it was like a real hip hop concert. Okay. It was called the spit kickers tour. <laughs> so How was he, was he, he so was nice? such a gentle giant, such oh. a sweetheart, just gave it his all, like gave it his all every time. And people really loved this man. Like he just yeah. made people come together and he was, I love unifiers and music. It's awesome. I was holding my breath. I was like, I hope she picked up his marquee. <laughs> you should have said it something, but yes, of course. Come on. Yeah. Yeah, man. This man was awesome and just really foundational for a lot of hip hop that may not be, you know, super political or this, that, and the other. This song that I'm bringing up, this is all emotional. He was in his feelings and he made it okay uh, for hip hop to address the everyday life, which is relationship. Um, but I actually really, really love this song and it's a fun track. So I hope you enjoy it. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. This is just a friend by Biz Marquee. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you all next week. Bye. Bye. Have a good week. Bye. Have you ever met a girl that you tried to date, but a year to make love, she wanted you to wait. Let me tell you a story in my situation. I was talking to this girl from the U.S. nation. The way that I met her was on tour at a concert. She had long hair and a short miniskirt. I just got on stage dripping, pouring with sweat. I was walking through the crowd, and guess who I met? I whispered in her ear, come to the picture booth so I can ask you some questions to see if you're 100 proof. I asked her her name, she said, blah, blah, blah. She had nine, ten pants and a very big bra. I took a couple of flicks and she was enthused. I said, how do you like the show? She said, I was very amused. I started throwing bass, she started throwing back mid-range. But when I sprung the question, she acted kind of strange. Because when I asked, do you have a man, she tried to pretend. She said, no, I don't. I only have a friend. I'm not even going for it. This is what I'm going to say. You, you got what I need. But you say he's just a friend. And you say he's just a friend. Oh, baby, you got what I need. But you say he's just a friend. But you say he's just a friend. Just having a friend couldn't be no crime Cause I have friends and that's a fact Like Agnes, Agatha, Jermaine and Jack Forget about that, let's go into the story About our girl named blah 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 that adore me So we started talking getting uh, Radio Free Brooklyn is sponsored in part by Pharmagear Offering little or no cost medical braces For more information is available at 844-598-6639